Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Welcome to another episode of Restoring the Soul, and this conversation is the last of season four. So if you've been regularly getting the podcast, you can expect your inbox to be empty, at least of the Restoring the Soul podcast, until sometime around the end of August or September. And that's 2018 for anyone who's listening to this in 2028. So my conversation today is with Dr. Jack Deere, and it is around his book, Even in Our Darkness, which is uh, compelling and heartbreaking and disturbing and yet hopeful read. Jack Deere was reared in Fort Worth, Texas, the oldest of four children. And when he was 12 years old, his father unexpectedly took his life. And the sorrow and the devastating impact of the loss of his father compelled him to become a rebel through his teens. And then at age 17, he began a relationship with Christ, and his life was transformed. And, and that change revealed in him a bent for scholarship. And so he went to Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. He majored in philosophy, and he started working with Young Life, uh, ministering to high school students. He graduated from TCU in 1971 and found himself at Dallas Theological Seminary, where he majored in Greek and Hebrew. He earned a master's and a doctorate in theology. And after that time, he was invited to join the faculty at Dallas Theological Seminary, where he taught Hebrew and Old Testament. And while doing all of that, he also started and pastored two separate churches. But in 1986, a major shift occurred, and he thoroughly reexamined the scriptures and came to ultimately reverse his position on the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit around healing and prophecy and miracles. And ultimately, he ended up on staff at the Vineyard Anaheim, where he pastored alongside his friend and mentor, John Wimber. So in my conversation, we will unpack Jack's story, the transition to what he came to believe about the gifts of the Holy Spirit for today, but also unpack the trauma and the brokenness and the devastating grief of so many losses in his life. And all of this is quite eloquently 
told and written in his memoir, Even in Our Darkness. So join me now in my conversation with Dr. Jack Deere. Dr. Jack Deere, I want to thank you so much for taking time uh, to talk with me today. And this is actually the second time that we've attempted to do this. Well, thanks, Michael. I'm, I'm glad you attempted a second time. Yeah, some technical difficulties uh, the first time around. Um, I want to talk about uh, your new book, but mostly the experiences of what you learned and how you experienced God and, and um, what it was like for you in some pretty tremendous suffering over the last couple of decades. Uh, but before we talk about that, I'd like to ask you for our listeners who may not be familiar with a couple of your books that I stumbled on a while back, or I should say that God led me to. I first encountered your writing and teaching with your book, Surprised by the Holy Spirit, and then Surprised by the Voice of God. And Surprised by the Holy Spirit uh, changed my life because I knew that the Holy Spirit was the third person of the Trinity, but that was it. And it opened my eyes to a whole new way of walking with God. So give me a little bit of your background from those years at Dallas Seminary uh, kind of forward as you got involved with, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, I was a professor at, at Dallas Seminary, and I did not believe that God uh, still healed today. I didn't believe that he spoke except in Scripture. And I got challenged by a really smart man that I admired who was a professor of psychiatry. And it got me to go back and reexamine my reasons against healing. And I spent about four months reading every single healing story in the New Testament. And at the end of that four months, uh, a period of four months, I became convinced that God was healing today. And we started praying for healing in my church, and we started seeing people healed. I mean, not psychosomatic healings, but like a lady with a documented angio, uh, an aneurysm documented by an angiogram. We prayed for her on Monday. She had a second uh, uh, angiogram on Wednesday, and the aneurysm was completely gone. Uh, and, and and so that first book I wrote in 1993, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, is actually an explanation of why God does miracles, why we could expect it today, and sort of some reasonable, practical advice on, on praying for people and not getting caught up in a lot of the craziness. Yeah, and that's what I appreciated so much about that book is uh, it was obvious that you had done your homework as a theologian and as a biblical scholar. Uh, and so for the skeptic, which I was at that time, it couldn't be easily written off. Plus, you shared a lot of great stories and told a lot of miracles there. Yeah, and all those stories were documented. They all had letters signed and uh, every single thing, every miracle story I told in there was a documented story. Wow. And as you became uh, more and more strengthened in your convictions, as well as your experiences, that eventually led to a conflict at Dallas Seminary where you were. And tell me about that. Well, I, I became friends with John Wimber, who at the time was probably one of the most famous uh, charismatic, uh, although he wasn't really a charismatic in the classic sense, but he, but he was famous. He was on the cover of all kinds of Christian magazines in the 80s and 90s. And he was teaching people how to have prayer teams in the church and my friendship with him became an embarrassment to Dallas Seminary. And I, I was given the choice of renouncing my friendship with him or resigning from the seminary. And I, I refused to, to do either one. And so the seminary fired me. Wow. I read that story. Um, I had heard that. 
and knew that from your book, but when I read it in your new book, even in our darkness, I just winced when I read that because it was coming first person from you. What was that like to, I mean, you had been devoted there. You were one of their top scholars and then to be put in that bind. It made me angry and it it wounded my pride. I became a Christian on December 18th, 1965. And my last day at Dallas was December 18th, 1987. So 22 years for the first time in 22 years, I didn't have moorings. I didn't, uh, I just kind of lost the order uh, in my life and had to, in one sense, start over again. Wow. And um, I I don't hold any animosity or judgment toward Dallas Seminary or any other institution, but um, because, you know, there's so many variations of belief and, and oftentimes people claim to say, well, this is the right way. But why do you think that there are such barriers to arriving at a place where this is not as good as it gets and that there's more of God available, more friendship with him, uh, more availability and power of the Holy Spirit, and even healing. You know, I can't speak for other people, but I know for me that that was my uh, normal attitude. Uh, When I uh, came into Young Life, I thought Young Life is where it's at. The church is sort of out of it. Then when I got to Dallas Seminary and and, uh, got immersed in Greek and Hebrew, I thought I'd finally arrived. And then when I met John Wimber and started praying for the sick and seeing healing, I thought, now I've arrived. And that's just sort of like, it, it's taken me a long time to realize how unhealthy that orientation toward life is. Hmm. So the obvious question, and part of me wants to postpone this till the end of the conversation, because I think you may answer it, but how, how do we get to that place where we're no longer uh, trying to arrive and, and get at a point of yeah, theological I, precision? Well, I, th- I think theological precision is great. It just you just don't, you you don't want to make a god out of it. So the, the short answer to that is a friendship with God. In friendship with God, when we're learning to love what He loves, I think that there's so much healing in that, and it's such a better orientation toward life, enjoying a person instead of guarding a set of doctrines. Wow, that's beautiful. The way you said that, love what He loves. Can you unpack that idea a little bit more? Um, I I try not to have a list of canned questions, but one of them that I did write down in your bio in the new book, even in our darkness, it does describe you as somebody who speaks on friendship with God. And I thought that was so refreshing. You know, it didn't talk about the size of your ministry or primarily about your credentials, but obviously you're speaking out of an overflow of friendship with God. So see more about how that contrasts with focusing on doctrine or somehow doing church. Well, a, a great way to do that would be to tell you tell you about the story of my conversion. And uh, I didn't see until recently how my conversion and the aftermath, I was actually being trained to be a friend of God. So I grew up in a family that uh, didn't go to church. From the time I turned six, my mom and dad were at war. I didn't know why they were at war. I had two younger brothers and then a baby sister came along. And we were the casualties of that war. My dad ended the war when I was 12 years old by committing suicide. Mm. He left a 34-year-old woman with uh, a 10th grade education to care for four fatherless kids. And in 1961 in Texas, there's no way a woman with a 10th grade education and the baggage of four kids is going to be able to make a living. And so we saw this parade of men come through our homes and we saw come through our home. 
and we saw things that, that no kid should ever see at home. And I put mom to bed drunk. Uh, she, she turned to the bottle. Her three boys just went south with her. I mean, we became as wild as we, we could. And if I had not become a Christian, I would never have made it to my 21st uh, year. I was that careless with my, my life. I couldn't distinguish myself academically. I couldn't distinguish myself uh, athletically. And so I tried to distinguish myself by being the wildest kid at school. I had a circle of eight friends. We were all unsupervised. All come, we all came from homes that were broken or in the process of uh, breaking. And one guy, the one smart guy out of that group, a guy named Bruce, defected and chased a blonde uh, named Dixie to church camp <laughs> the summer before our sophomore year. And he caught Southern Baptist hellfire damnation religion. And Bruce prayed, uh, we kicked Bruce out of our group immediately, but Bruce prayed for me every day for months, 18 months to be precise. And at the end of that time, he asked me if I would spend the night with him. We, we hardly ever saw him anymore. He said, if you'll spend the night with me, I'll take you to meet these really beautiful girls from another high school. And I agreed to do it. And at two o'clock in the morning, I asked him how you get to heaven. And he said, uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Michael, I was 17 years old, and I had never heard Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. Wow. And I lived in the Bible Belt. But my parents not only had no Christian friends, they had no friends. Sick homes are secretive homes. And uh, there was no Internet then. There was no religious TV. So there's no way to get that message unless you went to church. And I didn't go to church. And so it's the first time I heard Jesus died on the cross for me. And Bruce said, if you will trust him to forgive you and give you a new life, he will come into your heart and he will never leave again. And I said, that can't be true, Bruce. Uh, when, when you're 17 years old and everyone you've ever loved has left you to hear the greatest person in the universe will never leave you. It's just too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And Bruce said, oh, yeah, it's true. And then he quoted uh, John 10, 28. This was, this was the first verse of scripture I ever heard where Jesus said, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of uh, my hand. Mm. When I heard that verse, I was instantly born again. I couldn't have told you I was born again. I had no religious vocabulary, repentance, confession, salvation. None of those words were in my vocabulary. All I said on the inside in my heart was I just said, I'm coming over to you, God. I'm coming to your side now. I was born again that night and uh, joined Bruce's church, told him about it. And here, here's where I began to learn about friendship. Three months after I joined Bruce's church, I met a young life leader named Scott Manley. And Scott Manley, he was 26 years old. He was everything I wanted to be. He was intelligent. He was handsome. He, he uh, overflowed with confidence. He was funny. And he became my spiritual father, my big brother, and my best friend, all rolled into one. And that's where I began to learn about friendship with God. Only I didn't even use that expression there. So here's what I tell people. Here's what I say to people all the time. The only person who never needed any help chose 12 helpers. Mm, Why did he do it? Why did he do it? The answer is for the pleasure it gave him to love them and to teach them to love the things he loved so that they could have a life of, of significance for eternity. So Scott Manley came into my life, and he loved me, and he taught me to love the things he loved. He was preparing me to be a friend of God when I didn't know there was, when that wasn't even a category for me. I didn't even think 
in terms of friendships with God. I, I thought in terms of serving God. That's a remarkable story, um, and especially because I became a Christian through Young Life uh, as well, and was a leader for a time. And you know, Jim Rayburn, the founder of Young Life, believed in this idea of incarnational theology, and that it's the life on life. And it's just so beautiful how he became all those different roles to you, friend, big brother, father. And it sounds like in that context, your heart really began to experience the love through him that then opened the, the gateway to God's love. Yeah, the, my, my heart shut down in the home I grew up in. And in that relationship with Scott Manley, uh, feeling his, his uh, love and having joy in his presence, my heart began to open up. And he taught me how to study scripture. He loved scripture. He taught me how to study scripture. He taught me how to memorize scripture. He uh, gave me my first C.S. Lewis book, the first Christian book I ever read, The Screwtape Letters. And uh, that, that was a pivotal experience in my 17-year-old life. Uh, when I read, read that book, I was ruined for anything else in life. All I wanted to do was live in that, the world of that intellectual beauty and precision of C.S. Lewis and be with Scott Manley. Wow. And, and Scott was clearly not getting up in the morning saying, I want to spend my hours so that this person becomes a seminary professor someday and becomes uh, prolific or fruitful and therefore my life. He was just giving himself and, and loving you. And there's such, yeah. such a freedom in that. Um, yeah, right. With your phrase, uh, teaching people to love what God loves, that really does reorient it from rule following or from uh, trying to define our life by what we look on the outside. Can you give me some examples or stories of how, as you've had that approach of friendship with God, how other people have begun to flourish or respond to that? First of all, I mean, Scott loved me. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is he taught me to love what, uh, what he loved. So he, he loved memorizing scripture and, and that became a lifelong habit uh, for me. Uh, he taught me to study scripture by giving each paragraph of a book a three-word title, and then uh, after we after I'd done that, to memorize those uh, titles, and then I could close my eyes and think my way through Second Timothy. Then we did First Peter. That was five chapters, and so for the rest of my life, it's been a lifelong pleasure storing books of the Bible on the shelves of my brain. And then I met John Wimber, and Wimber loved praying for people. He loved being with uh, people who are weak or who are struggling and praying for them. And and, uh, and that, that became a passion in my life. It's still a passion. I just came from a meeting in Minneapolis where we spent last night uh, praying for uh, people with cancer and, and uh, other illnesses. And it's a, a pleasure uh, for me to do that. I think that's neat how you use the word pleasure associated with that versus, uh, you know, it's a, it's a labor, even words like labor of love, uh, things yeah. do require effort, but that it really is about joy and that loving what God loves creates a sense of pleasure and joy in you. Scott Manley, he loved life. And, and I, I, it didn't take me long to pick up from him that life uh, with God is meant to be enjoyed, not endured. I mean, there are times where we're going to have to endure things, but you just don't want that to be the main orientation toward life or obligation to be the main way you approach God. Well, you're saying a lot of things I wish I could I could just stop and unpack. Um, but I want to transition to your book, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life. 
that just came out this year. Before I do, though, since you've mentioned John Wimber a few times, for our listeners who may not be familiar, John was the founder of the Vineyard Church, and you tell a story in either uh, Surprised by the Voice of God or the Holy Spirit, I forget which one, about John as a young Christian who went to church. And, yeah. uh, he was talking to the pastor afterwards and a little bit kind of out of sorts about the church's kind of meeting him where he's at. And he said to the pastor, when do we get to do the good stuff? Do you remember that story? John started reading the Bible and loved the Bible. And he was really attracted to the miracles and the healing stories. And he went to church for about a month and kept wondering when they were going to do miracles, when they were going to pray for people. He came up to the pastor after about a month and he asked the pastor, when do we get to do, do the stuff? And the pastor says, what do you mean the stuff? He goes, well, you know, the, the healings, the miracles, like Jesus and the apostles, when do we get to do that? And the pastor said, well, we don't do that anymore. So John said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, pretty much what we did this morning. And John said, you mean I gave up drugs for this? <laughs> That's the story. I, I literally laughed out loud when I read that, but it resonated on so many levels because as a, as a, as a man who grew up in a family of addiction and with my own addictions, there was always that question of why doesn't my Christian faith touch this deepest part of me, my wounding, my brokenness, uh, my addictions and compulsions, and, and something was lacking. So it was books like Surprised by the Holy Spirit, and I could probably list another half a dozen books that began to change that orientation. So in this whole process with John and leaving DTS, you discovered this this whole other life with God. And talk about kind of how that developed and what your ministry became. Well, uh, one of the first things we started doing in my own church is we started praying for the sick. Then we started teaching people how to hear God's voice. I mean, like the Apostle Paul could get directions for ministry from the Holy Spirit. Don't preach here, preach over here, Acts chapter 16. And so we started asking for those kinds of directions, and we started uh, teaching that, uh, teaching healing and how to pray for the sick and teaching how to hear God's voice in the church. And you wrote in... Even in our darkness, uh, a paragraph that I wasn't sure if you were using this in a in a literal way or more figuratively. But as you started that ministry of healing and and really focusing on prayer, you wrote at one point that your wife Lisa and you became addicted to the experience of laying hands on people as Jesus did, and um, asking for restoration and for him, you know, healing not only their body but their mind and their soul and. How did you mean that? And then can you just comment on how when we're not as pastors and leaders kind of aware of or taking care of our inner life, how ministry really can be addicting? Well, uh, yeah, addiction is probably a, a bad word to, or, or has negative connotations. But, but prior to this, my, my main ministry was standing on a stage, digging principles out of the Bible and saying, here, follow these principles, you'll have a better life. Sometimes it helps people, sometimes it didn't. But when I started really talking to people in my church and finding out what they were, depression that they were struggling with or physical ailments, uh, Lisa and I and, and some others started laying hands on people and asking God to change them, to lift off a depression, to uh, heal a frozen neck or, in Ruth Gay's case, to take the aneurysm away. And often when we're praying for people, there will be some sort of manifestation of God's presence where 
it's a real, heal, uh, real healing or he's actually speaking to you in some way. And it was, uh, it just made God so much more personal and so much more imminent right there with us. And so as you continued in that, one of the things that was so difficult to read in your book uh, was how you're experiencing this sense of the miraculous, the supernatural uh, signs and wonders. And then some struggles came up in your own family. Um, And one of the major ones in the book was your son, Scott, uh, taking his own life at age 22, which of course is, you know, unfathomable for any parent, but you lost your own father to suicide. And you unpack this in the book, but what in the world was it like to go through, even before he he took his life, to all of those struggles and yet to see these miraculous healings happening, you know, in other contexts that you're personally involved with? Well, I think living with with an addicted, with, with a, a person who's addicted to drugs or some other destructive behavior is one of the hardest things in the world. You, you question everything. If, if Am I enabling? Am I being harsh? Am I not loving enough? Um, and I, I, I prayed more for my son than I prayed for anyone. And then when we uh, lost him, it was like, uh, the, you know, what's the real value of uh, prayer? And, and after I lost my son, it's like I couldn't write a line that I liked. I, I My plan was to publish a book every two years. And everything I wrote turned out like a lifeless cliche and I couldn't grow a church anymore. And then Lisa went down the opioid and alcohol route. And and I was, you know, I thought my job was to get her sober. I didn't, I I believe she was powerless over alcohol, but I didn't think I was powerless over her, her drinking. And so I ended up making her drinking worse and causing her to take a longer time to get uh, sober. So I guess what I'm saying is it felt like we went into a cave for a while and everything was just disorienting uh, for a number of years. What would you say, there's perhaps some listeners uh, that have lost uh, a loved one to suicide, and that's a particularly confusing issue for so many different reasons, but what would you say to someone who uh, has gone through that, what you might have learned in the in the process of grieving? Well, I don't think there's a paradigm uh, for it. You know, people will quote Kubler-Ross's studies about bargaining and anger and all that kind of stuff. That was written about patients who who were diagnosed with a terminal illness. It, it wasn't a, meant to be a manual of grief for everyone. So, so I don't think there's one paradigm. And you know, you're you're going to grieve for X amount of years, or it's going to be expressed this way. Uh, I think the most important thing for us was having our close friends with us, and they didn't try to get God off the hook. They didn't offer an explanation. They just cried with us, and they wash clothes for us. They got food for us when we couldn't take care of our, uh, ourselves. So having close friends walk with you during that time and having someone you can cry with and, and you can just say whatever you want, you know, how you feel and there's no judgment. That was probably the uh, on the human side, the most healing thing we did. And then we found God just breaking through in all sor- sorts of incredible ways, not where he took the pain away, uh, but where he gave us power to endure the pain and hope that this is going to end, that he's going to take us through it. This is not the place we're going to live. I'm so glad you said that because the question that was forming in my mind was, 
um, and, and I lost my brother uh, to suicide. And as a parent, I can only imagine that you simply never get over the loss of a child. But with all the complexity of, of suicide, what does healing look like? You know, we know that time doesn't heal all wounds, but you just described how God sustained you. But what does healing look like? And what did that look like for you? I don't think uh, time heals anything. I think time gives us a space to be healed. I think God is really uh, the healer. Every detail of that morning when we found my son's body, all that's intact. I haven't forgotten any of that. Uh, I I can recall it in a heartbeat. Here's the best way I can express it. I, I can't say exactly when or even exactly how, but on maybe it was the 10th or 11th anniversary of Scott's death, Uh, December 27th, 2000. So maybe it was December 27th, 2012. I realized that all the sting of Scott was gone and nothing was left but the sweetness that uh, I really was healed. And I always believed I would be healed. I just didn't know when or how it would come. And, And sometimes people would say in the early days, you'll never get over this. And every time somebody said that, I just flinched. I, I just, I didn't want to believe that one reckless act by my son would maim our souls forever. I wanted to believe that somehow God would be able to break through all this and take away the pain. And that's what he's done. So I can honestly say there's no pain there. And when I think of Scott, I was angry at him for the longest time. I'm not angry anymore. There's just this sweetness, sweet memories. And I have uh, this longing of, of, of being able to be with him again in heaven. I was having a conversation just this morning uh, with someone who has gone through uh, tremendous pain and loss of betrayal, and the cry of their heart for over an hour was, I'll never, ever, ever get over this pain. I can't imagine it. And so your words, uh, as they hear this, are going to be so filled with hope. Jack, with your permission, I would like to read two short paragraphs from even in our darkness. Can I do that? Sure. Yeah, sure. You're uh, writing just after your son, Scott, uh, died. You had, you had found him, the trauma that you just described. And you write, two weeks after we buried him, the funeral bill arrived. It was $10,064.69. 30 minutes later, my secretary walked in the room with a sack of mail. I dumped out 38 sympathy cards and letters, which contained 22 checks, one for each year of Scott's life. I added them up, the total, $10,065, a few pennies above the cost of putting his body in the ground. I was stunned. I didn't need the money. I still had plenty in the bank to pay for Scott's funeral. And then you have as a separate line, what are you saying, God? I asked, and I won't read what God said to you in response, but this may belie my immaturity or lack of faith, but I read that and I got so angry and I I thought, God, if you could, you know, almost to the penny provide for the funeral again, why, why wouldn't you intervene to stop this tragedy? And how did you wrestle with that? And what did God say to you when you said, what are you saying, God? That was the the stunning thing for me is why you would give me, within pennies, the exact amount of the funeral cost whenever I didn't need it. And I knew it was a message. I know that 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 wasn't an accident. And uh, so I just said, why God, why would you do that? And I heard three sentences. I paid for his, his death. I paid for his life. 
and I'll pay for everything you need the rest of your life. Mm. It's like he was right there. He was so real and so tangible. I, I didn't even stop to think, well, why didn't you just say that? I, that, I didn't get, I didn't have any, any anger like that. It was, this was like a token to me. I'm going to take you through this. I'm going to do things for you uh, that you, you can't imagine. And I'm go- going to heal you. I'm going to bring you through this. But he didn't take away the pain immediately. I and mean, we went through really, really hard, hard years. But he kept doing things like that where, where he just inserted his presence. Sometimes it could be a downtime, sometimes just an ordinary time. But it was a way of him saying, I'm here, I'm with you, and I'm going to make this right. And whatever that means, I'm going to make this right. Um, I, I believe that. And, and it gave me hope. That's beautiful, the three things about what God has paid for and that he'll pay for everything in the future. And then, you know, after my anger, as I read that, I just, I had to ponder that for a long time uh, to take it in. And I think hearing it from you out loud, uh, it just kind of clicked. (laughs) After Scott's death, and I just want to pause for a minute and say, it's almost easy in an interview like this where we're not face to face to kind of go through what was in the book as, uh, as clinical information or almost like facts. So I know that this was your lived life and that there is redemption and beauty in this brokenness. But during that whole season, God started to revive you and your wife, Lisa. And then uh, several years later, as you said, she delved into opioids and alcohol. And that was a very, very deep dive into addiction that was also yeah. greatly, greatly painful. Can you talk a little bit about that? So all, all Lisa ever wanted to be was his mother and a wife. She she didn't need a job to find her self-esteem. She came out of a super abusive home. She wanted to reverse that. She wanted children to love, husband to love. And uh, she totally threw herself into motherhood. And when we lost Scott and we, we gathered around his body, Lisa and me, our son, Stephen, our daughter, Elise, we all gathered around his body. We laid hands on him and prayed for uh, God to bring him back. And we said, we're going to pray for him, for God to bring him back until God gives him back to us or till the police come and make us leave. Well, while Lisa was praying for Scott, the demons were just dancing in her head and, and she could hear laughter in her head and, and sentences like this. Some mother you turned out to be, uh, if you'd been a better mother, your son wouldn't have done, wouldn't have done this. So she, she just cratered uh, after his death and, I would hold her at night and she would cry for an hour and a half or two hours and, and over and over just say, I miss Scotty. I miss Scotty. And I was so afraid that she was going to fall into an abyss of insanity and I would never get her back. So we went through that period for months and months and months. And then just gradually she began to increase her wine drinking. And about four years after we lost Scott, that's when I, when I realized the wine drinking, uh, the opioids and all that, were a, a serious problem. And so it was another uh, f- five or six years in and out of rehabs and that sort of thing before Lisa stopped drinking. And and that was a, a pretty miraculous story as well in that despite just some brutal stories, uh, painful, painful stories as you're reading them, not knowing where this is going to end up, uh, God brought her to a place of just saying, I, I want to be sober and, and, and whole. Yeah. So at one point in one of those um, rehab admissions, 
there's a story that you share about Lisa sharing about some of her pain to you because you were very honest throughout the book to talk about your struggle with anger. And yeah. uh, at one point, you actually asked the counselor, do you think I could benefit from a week in your trauma program? And what was it like for you to go from being the caregiver that didn't know that you were powerless over her drinking to suddenly be in a rehab or an inpatient facility for a week getting trauma therapy? Okay, so we're, we're talking about the summer of 2006. Lisa has been in the meadows for four months. I go up there. I can't believe how great she looks. They're helping her find dignity uh, after the sexual abuse she experienced as a child. And that's what got us in the meadows is when she finally told me the truth about the sexual abuse. And so I, I go up there for, for family week and they're sort of insinuating that I'm part of Lisa's problem, which I don't think I'm part of her problem. And one of the counselors says, do you always interact like that, Jack? And I said, like what? And he said, just like that. And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, Jack, I'm talking about the tone, your voice, your face. And they began to talk to me about my anger. And then they set up a, a confrontation a safe confrontation where Lisa could tell me how much my anger had hurt her over the years. And that pretty much broke me. And that's when I went into their trauma program that deals with the uh, traumas from birth in your early life until you're 17. And then it connects your adult dysfunctions with those uh, traumas. And that was an eye-opening ex experience for me. I had discounted my childhood. I didn't think it had any, any effect on my successful adult life. But a lot of the harshness, the perfectionism, all that stuff came uh, out of my uh, childhood. I went through some therapy there, a series of therapeutic exercises that broke the spirit of, uh, of anger. It didn't get rid of all my anger, but that perfectionism um, and anger, it broke its back. And I, and I came out of there a way more peaceful person. It seems like it's um, pretty common for people that can be highly theologically educated, biblically literate, and successful on, you know, all the worldly levels to be walking around with uh, not just the demons that you talked about that were in uh, Lisa's head and oppressing her, but with all kinds of trauma and brokenness. And is that your experience? And what has your experience taught you in terms of maybe how you can or we can help other people be aware of that? I think people, uh, people like me uh, tend to live in their head and we discount our feelings and, and often people who are really good academically, um, they're, they're more comfortable with books than people and they tend to suppress their feelings and, and live out of their, live out of their mind. And, and uh, that's what I did for a lot of my uh, life because uh, when I let myself feel, I hurt. And when I wasn't in control, I, I was being hurt as a child. And, and so I grew up suppressing my feelings and wanting to be in, in uh, control. And finally, there has to be some kind of loving relationships you're in uh, that, that will allow you to feel and, and realize that, uh, uh, that loving God is feeling, is being passionate about God. And, and being around some people, I, were, I, I was around people who were passionate uh, about God after I got out of a seminary world, and, and uh, they, they prayed for passion for God. And I started praying the prayers they were praying and found my love and, and for God increasing and my uh, ability to see his beauty in, in daily life increased. So that time in the meadows and dealing with the trauma from your childhood, how did that uh, open up 
or, or change your view or understanding of God and his heart? I'm not sure. I, what, what it did is it, got, it helped me to get rid of a huge amount of rage and replace it with just so much more peace. I, maybe it's a matter of, uh, of getting rid of not being so uptight about situations that it makes it easier to trust God. But basically what I did in that, that, that week is just dumped a, a rage that had been trapped in my heart since childhood. Hmm. I, I can only imagine how uh, light of spirit you felt coming out of there. Yeah, true. That's a, that's a good word, light. I just I felt like something had left me, some, some huge heaviness, some weight was gone. And then because you did that work uh, for your soul and, and mind, um, even though it was a long journey back with you and Lisa, uh, that would have opened up a whole new way of being able to relate to her and vice versa, I imagine. Yeah, uh, both she and my daughter said, after I came back out of the meadows, uh, my, my daughter would go, Dad, you're different. And, uh, and Lisa felt the same thing. You know, you, you, you've gotten rid of a lot of anger. I mean, not all of the anger, but a lot of it. Right. Um, Jack, because you have the strong theological background and understanding of scripture, and then the experience of how God uh, can supernaturally heal people's uh, inner world and heart, as well as, you know, psychological illness, but having journeyed with your son and your wife through such depths of addiction, what have you learned about addiction that you would say to followers of Jesus that we might not understand? You don't have any control over someone else's addiction. That was the biggest thing for me. But I saw Lisa as a, a task, a quest. And I was like the knight in shining armor who was going to set her free or get her sober. And I lost the ability to see her as a person for a while because she, she became a quest to me. And uh, it, it, when I gave up trying to get her sober, when I gave up suggesting things and just kind of oriented myself, just saying, as long as I have her, I'm going to try to enjoy her. When, when I made that transition, it, it wasn't too much longer before she actually didn't want alcohol uh, anymore. She wanted to, wanted to get uh, sober. So I, I think that's the biggest thing is I, I, my big mistake was to think because I could read about addiction, I could understand it. Uh, and, and I wouldn't go get help. I wouldn't get help for myself. I wouldn't go to Al-Anon or, or, uh, or even, or even get counseling for myself. I thought I, I can learn everything I need just by reading books. Yeah, it's obvious in even in our darkness that you had done your homework. I mean, you quote Gaber Mate and uh, a lot of other quotes around addiction. Mate is one of my favorite authors about it. But man, is that so true? Uh, having grown up in recovery and been part of a family drug rehab when I was nine, that information about addiction does not really uh, bring us any any healing or freedom. We really have to deal with yeah, stuff. Um, what you're saying about um, trying to get her to change, and then when that pressure was taken away, that it wasn't long after that that she didn't want to drink. That reminds me so much, and it makes me think of our relationship with God. That when we're living under the law, um, that our hearts aren't free, and we become resentful or proud or weary, but then when we um, give that up and give up the control of trying to be you know, good enough or to impress God, that it's then that our heart can really flow and be free. So what are your comments just on that connection between what happened with you and Lisa and how God relates to us? 
that one of the biggest changes for me in the last half of my Christian life has been verses like John fifteen fifteen. I no longer call you servants, but friends. It's not like he's saying service is not important, but it's like there's a new element I'm adding here, and I want to relate to you as friends. You're always going to serve me, but I want I want you to be my friend now. And the essence of friendship is not service, although friends will serve each other uh, w- without question. But that's not the essence. The essence is pleasure. I have my best friend for the pleasure it gives me to be with him. I feel something when I'm with my best friend uh, that I don't feel with other people. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to find pleasure in me. I want you to feel me enjoying you. I want a real friendship with you. And it doesn't mean they're not going to be hard times. But when you make that your orientation, instead of making a service your orientation, you don't think of God so much as an obligation. Is this person that you're enjoying and getting to know better and better. And Jack, forgive my uh, ignorance, but have you written anything, either a book or articles or blogs about this idea of friendship as pleasure with God? Uh, the book you're holding, that's okay. the uh, where I talk about it uh, the most. But I, I write this book. It's an unsanitized version of the Christian life. And it's actually the story of becoming a friend of God. You know, but I tell the sins in our life, the uh, include things that are raw, because that's the way life is meant to be lived, rather than standing on a stage and presenting this version of the Christian life that no one really lives. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. And so there's not this friendship as a, uh, as a growing thing that doesn't eliminate pain, but it does introduce a significant level of joy into your uh, relationship to God. And, and that, too, is what I picked up in the book. The subtitle is A Story of Beauty in a Broken Life, Even in the Midst of Darkness. And so if you were to say in a sentence or two to someone who is suffering and in a place of great darkness and they can't see beauty and they can't see light, uh, what hope would you give them? Number one, I'd say pray. Uh, Don't give up on God. Pray. God is going to uh, come to you. God is going to give you mercy. That's what he does. And that that is who he is. He's he's mercy. I want to thank you, Dr. Jack Deere, for Uh, not just for this time on the podcast, but for all of your books, and especially this book where it is absolutely true that there's nothing sanitized uh, or pretentious in this book. And I I think it's a gift to the body of Christ. It was a gift to me. So thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. 